The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Our reading today comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 22 through 24, and also 22, verse 21 through 27. If you have a Bible, you can follow along with us. There's also some Bibles underneath your chair, and we'll start on page 40. Or you can, of course, look on the screen, such as I do. All right. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Twenty-one through twenty-seven. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. This is God's word. I'm going to pray. Let's get rolling. Father, I thank you for uh, this group. I thank you for this uh, sunny day. Uh, God, I thank you for the chance that we're going to have to enjoy each other's company and some good food and uh, whatever else uh, afterwards, and I'm looking forward to that. Father, I pray that you would help us not only to feast upon uh, this uh, food that you're going to provide this, morning, this afternoon, this morning, that you help us feast upon your word. God, we are a hungry people. Uh, we come here, and uh, some of us aren't even, we don't even realize how hungry we are. Uh, we, in our innermost beings, we long for you. And Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself through your word this morning, uh, not through me, but through your word. pray you'd glorify your son through the Holy Spirit, and pray that we'd be cognizant of the fact that he's here with us this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, here's the truth. None of us likes to be told what to do. None of us likes to be told what to do. I, I know this, first of all, because I'm a dad. And I don't know how many of you guys are, are parents in here, but... Uh, so much of our time is spent telling our kids what we want them to do and then having to either convince them that they have to do it or deal with their obstinacy and not wanting to do it. Our, our, we spend so much time as parents with our children trying to convince them to do the very basic things. Uh, eating, sleeping, using the bathroom, like these are the very basics of life. But they're the ones that we have to spend the most energy to compel them to do. I wish I had somebody telling me it's time to eat and that I have to eat. I wish that I had somebody tell me, you need to go take a nap now. I would be 
up in my bed and before you could even blink your eye. I wish somebody told me, hey, you have to go to bed early tonight. I would be, I'd be all about that. It is lights out, send me to bed. I wish somebody would tell me to do those things, but for some reason, we tell Sophia and Landon to do those things and it's like we ask them to jump off a cliff. It's not really that what we ask them to do is difficult. It's just that we ask them to do it and they don't want to do it. Because see, nobody likes to be told what to do. I also know that because I'm a boss, I, I, have a, I own a, a small business, and I help to lead a church, which, to be honest with you guys, I love you guys, but leading Christians is like herding cats. I, it, it, to, to, to no end does it surprise me now, either as a, a boss or as a leader in a church, that people will just either ignore, pretend you didn't say something, or just... Go ahead and do whatever you said to not to do or not do what you told him to do just in a skinny minute. Uh, my present comp- employees that are here excluded. I'm talking about everybody else, not you. <laughs> I also mostly know that I, people don't like to do what they don't want to do. They don't like to be told what to do because I know myself. Uh, I go to a store and they say, don't do this or to do this. I go to an event and they say, go in this line, not this line. I I drive down the road and it says, stop here. And I just don't want to stop there. Or it says, go this, go 45 miles per hour. And I don't want to go 45 miles per hour. I want to go whatever speed I want to go. And I mostly, mostly know it because I'm married. And most of my, the worst and most embarrassing arguments We'll call them debates I have with my wife. The most embarrassing uh, debates that I have with my wife, oh, they're fights. The most embarrassing fights that I have with my wife are based upon really this, when I hear myself, if I could hear myself, like the way I really sound. And later on, when I, when I do look back and I see what I said, it's really basically the same argument that my five-year-old makes. It's just like, I don't want to do that and you can't make me do it. I don't want to be told what to do, and you don't want to be told what to do. Yet there's another desire that's within us that we, we long for a just society. We, we long for our world and our nation, our workplaces, our homes to be ruled by fairness and peace. We want our, we long for peace and prosperity. We we, we long for things to be right. We all want a society that's ruled by peace and prosperity, but we don't want to be ruled ourselves. So imagine our response when we come in contact with a God who says that he is the God of heavens and earth, and heavens and earth the heavens and the earth, and he demands our complete and total allegiance from us. Imagine our response when we meet a God who says, I am the God of heaven and earth and I demand complete and total obedience from you. Imagine our response when we meet a God who says, I demand and I require from you your full admiration, your full worship, and here's the way things should be and you have to follow these rules, these laws. And he lays out rules and laws that cover every area, every arena of my life and demands my total obedience. If I don't want to stop at a stop sign because I see that nobody else is coming even though the stop sign is there and I want to just do whatever I want to do, 
Imagine my response to a God who says, I want to rule every part of your life. Today, we're gonna see three reasons that a just society, a just society is only found under the rule of God. Uh, Number one, the law displays the character of God. Number two, the law shows us the way things should be. And number three, the law makes us long for a heroic ruler. Three reasons just society is only found under the rule of God. First of all, the law displays the character of God. So three weeks ago, we were in the Ten Commandments. And those are the kind of the part of God's law that we're all kind of aware of. Uh, we may not have them memorized, but we like recognize them when we hear them. Yeah, those are the Ten Commandments. Yeah, I, I recognize that. The, you know, life would be better if we follow the Ten Commandments. But uh, th- these chapters that I've uh, assigned today, Exodus 21, 22, and 23, there are very few sermons that are, writ- that are given about them. There's very little that is written about them. And quite honestly, let's just be honest, if you try to read through the Bible and you get to this section, it can be pretty boring. It can seem pretty boring. Or it can seem, it can seem not important. But this is an important section. Uh, this is the section of the law. God's giving his, he's uh, uh, appeared to his people, Israel, on Mount Sinai. He gave uh, Moses the Ten Commandments. And then he says, now, the Ten Commandments, that's the moral law. Now let me give you the civil law. This is the way that, this is how you enact the principles of the Ten Commandments in your everyday life with each other. That's, this is called the Book of the Covenant. In case you're keeping notes and you want to like, impress your friends uh, with the Bible trivia later on today, the Exodus 21, 21 through 23 is called the Book of the Covenant. But how do we wade through all of this stuff? I mean, you guys heard just a little bit. I mean, it, it gets in the nitty-gritty. If you're peeking down and taking a look at it, in the nitty-gritty of life, Exodus 21, 22, and 23, some very specific and some very seemingly archaic and very weird rules that you and I just read and like, what in the world is going on here? But first of all, we have to understand that the law was spoken by God directly. So if the law was spoken by God directly, and you believe, if you believe that God is good, a good God, then number one, we have to understand that God's law is good. Secondly, if he's the God of heaven and earth and he does rule the universe, then that means that what he gives us, what he says to us is not only good, but it's authoritative. That means that you and I don't get to come to the the word of God and say, here's what I think about it. I'm gonna accept this and not accept this. Just as you and I don't get to come to the laws of the land and say, I'm gonna follow this and I'm not gonna follow this. Or if you do, eventually it's gonna catch up with you, right? Even if you find a loophole and you think you've, you've made it through, God has no loopholes. We don't stand in authority over his word. His word stands in authority over us. And thirdly, we understand that if the law was spoken by God directly, then just like anybody, like if I were to sit down with you and I have a, a conversation with you, and we start talking about just things, just shooting the breeze, which I love to do, and talk about all kinds of inane things. Over time, you're gonna hear me talk and I'm displaying and d- disclosing to you my character and my nature. Hanging out with me, having conversations with me, You'll begin to figure out, hey, this is a kind of a weird dude. He's a nerd. Uh, he's, uh, 
Uh, he has some interesting interests. He talks about coffee a lot, and he talks about Clemson football a lot, and I'm not really sure if he has any other interests outside of the Bible and Clemson football and coffee. I'm not really sure. The more you talk with me, the more you're going to understand my nature and my character. If I sat down with you, the same thing would happen. And the same thing happens as we read the law that God declared verbally to his people. We understand better his nature and his character. Now, what do we see when we see his nature and character? When we see these laws, we see several things. We see that God is a God of justice. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of love. And God's a God of wrath. Now, here's the interesting thing about that is that those things in our American modern mindset don't always seem to go together. Because let's just be honest, most of us in here, we're sort of put on the hook one way or the other. You're like the sort of a justice dude, right? Like you are the rule follower. You want things to be done right. You're keeping score. You're looking around like I'm that, I'm that guy. Like I get irritated because like I'm following the, the speed limit fairly closely. And then people just fly back past me just ignoring it all together. And I get so angry at them. They're not going the speed limit. I'm a rule follower. I'm a rule keeper. I'm keeping track of that. I'm a, more of a justice kind of guy. And then there are some of you in here, you're the love people. You're the mercy people. And, and you, just, you just like, anytime you meet somebody, you just love them and you feel so sorry for them and you just wanna let everything go. But the problem is, those of us who are ruled by justice alone, like that can be a harsh life. That can be a harsh person to know and to be around. But if you are ruled by simply just love and mercy all the time, people are gonna run all over you or more importantly, like you're not gonna be able to hold your children and people around you accountable to what they should be held accountable to. And only in God do we see perfectly married together justice, that things should be made right with mercy together. We see love but it's not a soft love that just like lets everything go. It's a love that's married with wrath. And wrath has, sounds like a terrible thing to us, but wrath is, simply has to do with justice. Like if somebody, comes, if somebody comes into your house, breaks in and steals the valuables out of your house, you don't just say, hey, that's okay. You want things to be made right. When we hear a story about someone who is murdered or abused, we don't just say, hey, that's okay. If a judge, that person that committed that crime appeared for them and said, hey, I feel good about you today. Just go out of here and don't even worry about it. Don't worry that you killed that man. Uh, you'll probably do better later. We would want that judge removed from the bench because we know intuitively that there should be justice. But yet we also know in certain circumstances there should be mercy. And here's the interesting thing to understand is to think about is why do you and I want justice and mercy? What does that mean so much to us? Because if, if society, the society that we live in today, the overarching culture that we live in today is right and there is no God, then really the survival of the fittest should, should apply. There should be no need for mercy and no need for justice. The strong survive and they should survive and the weak should be taken advantage of and clobbered and crushed because they're weak. But we know that's not right. Do you know why you and I long for that? Because you and I were made in the image of God. His 
thumbprint is upon you and I. No matter how far away we run from him, no matter how much we want to deny him, no matter how much we want to rule our own lives and don't want anybody to boss us around, his imprint is upon us. And we have a desire for love and mercy and justice and wrath. We also have a desire for beauty and meaning in life that's not able to be explained by any other reason except that we were made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. That's why we long for those things. And that's why the law is so important because it shows us the nature and character of God. It shows us the justice and mercy of God working together. The law, number two, the law shows us the way things should be. Now, you and I can read through this section, Exodus 21, 22, 23, uh, the rest of the, the books of the law, and we can feel like it's kind of archaic and oppressive. It can seem boring. But remember this, you and I don't like to be told what to do. So when we read God saying, hey, this is the way things should be, something rises up in our heart that says, I don't want it that way. Because we don't like to be told to do. But if we look at this, there's real beauty here. The law shows us the nature and character of God being played out in everyday life. How should we, re, how should we treat our neighbors? How should we treat our children? How should we treat our coworkers, our employers, and our employees? How should we treat uh, the people that we that we meet every day? How should we deal with things when, if, if you borrow my garden hose and then you puncture my garden hose, how do we deal with those things? He gets into the nitty gritty about how that should happen. We're gonna run over some, real quickly, some uh, attributes of the law that maybe you, you've seen or not seen. And we're gonna flip around in these few chapters uh, real quickly. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. First um, Exodus 21, verses 12 through 14, we see that God... Uh, lays out that they're in the law that we have personal responsibility. We are responsible for our actions. Look at verse 12 through 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if it did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. He's saying in case of murder, you have personal responsibility. It's not the right of the powerful over the oppressed. It's not the, that the strongest survive and the weak uh, don't. He says life has value and you're personally responsible. Look at verses 18 through 19 when we look at uh, personal injury. When men quarrel and one strikes the others with a stone or his fist, and the man does not die, but takes to his bed. Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall, be, he shall pay him for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So it's saying like, if, you, if two guys get in a fight, the other guy doesn't die, but he gets injured, that you have a responsibility to, to pay him restitution for the loss of his time and his livelihood that we have personally responsible for each other for what we do and what, what we do not do. He also lays down his rights in, in, uh, in, in the law, property rights. Look at Exodus 23, verses four through five. If you meet your enemy's ox, so your enemy's ox, 
or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Listen to that. He's saying that not only do we have property rights, but the property rights are so secure that even if you meet your enemy and he's lost something, you return it to him no matter what he's done. We have personal property rights. Then look at uh, verses uh, one and verses four of chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Verse four, if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Now, stealing livestock would be like the worst kind of stealing in the ancient world because the livestock would be the most valuable thing you possessed. It took a long time for that livestock to grow up and then for you to train it to do what you had trained it to do. And so for you to lose that meant losing your livelihood. And so that's why it says that they steal it and they sold it or that it dies and you can't get it back. Not only do they have to pay it back, but they have to pay that back fivefold. I'm sorry, fourfold, excuse me, fourfold. But then even if they steal it, and it's found alive that you have to pay it double. You have to make restitution for what you've done wrong. Then look at uh, verses five and six. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, who started the fire shall make full restitution. He's saying that we're responsible for making restitution for things that we have done wrong. So the case of uh, Dan who borrows my garden hose and he punctures it, he should give me a whole garden hose back. It also goes on later to say that though, if he says, hey, will you come to my house and help me and I bring my garden hose or my tools and I help him and something happens to it while I'm with him, he doesn't have to pay me back because I was with him. I was helping him to use it. It lays out very a sense of fairness when it comes to what is right and what is wrong. What are we responsible for each, to each other? That there is a responsibility to each other. That we are not islands. That it's not the question about what can I get away with and not get away with, but we have a responsibility to each other to make things right when we've done wrong either intentionally or accidentally. Look at verse 14 and 15. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, this is what I was talking about, and is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was, if it was hired, it came for its hiring fee, a sense of fairness. Now, if, if you and I are in this room and you uh, tend to be more on the conservative political slant, I'm gonna get in politics as a touch today. If you tend to be on the conservative slant, then you like all the things I just talked about. Personal responsibility, restitution, property rights. Those are things like, yes, there should be justice. You should, you should make restitution when you've done wrong. Absolutely. So we're all on board with that. But then God only just lay down like a conservative Republican agenda. He also lays down what you may think is to be more of a liberal, democratic sort of ideal. Look at uh, verse six of chapter 23. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. He's saying that we should be 
that we should have care for the poor in such a way that we make sure that the poor don't get run over by the rich. Because the rich are powerful, they have money, they can, they can make things happen, they can have judges in their pocket, or maybe they just have friendships and relationships in high places, and the poor don't. He says we should make sure that the poor don't get left out of the mix. Not only that, but look at uh, Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Why? Well, number one, that's good agriculture, right? I, I grew up in the country. Uh, I, I grew up uh, around farmlands. Uh, it, I looked out my, my back window and there was a big field of either soybeans or corn, depending on the year. Uh, I told you guys before, like, uh, this is literally true. Like, a couple times a year, they would uh, move the cattle from one field to another field, the farmers on our road, and they would not only could be like, just herd them down the road, but they would actually like go through our yard. I woke up and there were chickens like all over the place. Like I understand a little bit about agriculture because my granddad made me get up, made me get up early in the morning on summer break to help him like uh, hoe, oh, that was the worst, to hoe uh, the, the, the weeds or to weed the land, to water things, to, uh, to pick, oh, to pick the beans, that was the worst thing. Oh, man. But it's good, it's good agriculture, it's good farming, that you don't farm the same thing on the land every year because it uses up the nutrients in the soil. You have to rotate your crops. And so he says, you grow for six years and then you let it lie for one year, let it rest. But then here why he says that you should do that. But let it lie fallow, the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. What he says later on in other places is what you do is for six years you cultivate the land and then one year you let it rest and then you and the poor, you don't, you don't keep the poor off your land. You, the poor, the beasts of the field, they can all come on your land and eat. And he's made this promise if you do this, there'll be enough food for you and for the poor and for the livestock in your midst. He's saying, make room for the poor to care for them, to provide for them. But then he also says, we should give protection for the disadvantaged. Look at Exodus 22, verses 21 through 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner. That would be a... uh, an alien, an immigrant, perhaps a refugee. You should not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You should not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, here's how serious it is. If you do mistreat them, a sojourner, an alien, an immigrant, a refugee in your midst, a widow, a fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your your children fatherless. He says we should care for the poor and the immigrant and the widow and the orphan in our midst. Look at verse nine of chapter 23. You shall not oppress a sojourner You know the heart of a sojourner, an immigrant, for you were immigrants or sojourners in the land of Egypt. Then look at verse 12. 
Six days you shall do your work. But on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien, that's the immigrant, the refugee, may be refreshed. He says we do not take advantage of those who are powerless in our midst. He provides protection for the disadvantaged. He even provides for fairness in lending. Look at Exodus 22, verses 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you should not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. But then he also, and this is, hey, I'm just, I'm just reading to you what this says. Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, I don't think you can put God in a box. Look at Exodus 21, verse 2. He even limits excessive profits to the detriment of others. When you buy a Hebrew slave, so number one, that's a problem. He allows for slavery. It was a part of the culture at the time. But Hebrew slavery is not to excuse saying it's awesome, but Hebrew slavery was a different kind of slavery than Western or, or uh, American or African slavery was later on. Uh, Hebrew slavery is based upon the fact if, if someone borrowed money from you, you lent them money and they couldn't pay it back, eventually if they couldn't pay it back, they could become an indentured servant or an indentured slave to you. But here's, the, he, but here's what the provision that he makes. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. In Leviticus 25, uh, when he, he kind of teases out this law more, he says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall, make, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee, that's the seventh year. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. In Deuteronomy, it says, if your brother or a Hebrew man or woman is sold to you, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, you shall let him go free. Now listen to this. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of of your wine press, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So he builds in. If somebody's, if you lend to somebody, they can't pay you back. They become, in this case, your servant. But you don't get to take advantage of them the rest of their life. The seventh year, they get to go free. And not only do they get to go free, but you've been blessed by their labor. You send them out with enough to, so they can then survive and thrive after they leave you. This law shows us how to live in a broken world. These moral, the moral laws, the, you know, the laws of the Ten Commandments are still active and in effect. These civil laws were specific, so these aren't, shouldn't be the code of our society, society today. It was the code of their civil laws in Israel at the time. But they do set out principles for us. Principles that you and I should strive to emulate. We should try to emulate them in a broken world. There's an author named Steve Garber, and he talks about how we as Christians should be looking for how to enact uh, what he calls proximate justice. That means understanding that we live in a broken world. Nothing is perfect. 
nothing is perfect. But that you and I as believers, as we live in this world as, as a, a part of the church, a, a sort of an outpost of God's kingdom that's surrounded by our, our society, that you and I should try to point people to the promise that is to come by striving to enact what we call proximate justice. That means to get as close as we possibly can in a broken world to the kind of world that God has called us to live in, the kind of world that all of us long to be in. We long to be a part of a just society that's full of peace and prosperity, that, that where the wrong does not go unpunished, and that righteousness or good deeds are celebrated. You and I long for that deep inside us, and that we should, as believers, strive to live that kind of life and to enact that around us. The church should be an outpost of that just society. But no matter how much we long for that just society, we experience something else in this world, right? Like people all across the world cry out for justice. But yet our experience is far from that. And what that causes us to do is it causes us, the law, thirdly, makes us long for a heroic ruler to come and make things right. First of all, we long for somebody to come and fulfill the law. The law is beautiful and the society that it describes is enticing. It's the kind of world you and I would like to live in. As, as if we're gonna live in a broken world, we'd like to live in a broken world where we know that the wrongs are gonna be made right and there's a guardrail to keep us going in the, from falling into total anarchy, right? We long to live in that kind of world. But there's a roadblock in each, not in society, it's not a conservative problem or a liberal problem, it's not a political problem, not the problem that, that we're either too socialist or too capitalistic, it's not that we're too democratic or not democratic enough. The problem is that there's a roadblock in our hearts. And no matter how what we hear from outside us that says like, yes, like we should live just lives, there's something inside us that causes me not to want to do what I'm told to do, no matter how right it is. We can't seem to stop ourselves. You know why that is? It's because our actions are coming out of our life like a, a tank of water that's contaminated. The smallest bit of water, you can keep pumping clean water into, a, into that tank, it will always come out contaminated as long as there's one bit of contamination in the tank. And that's what it's like for you and I. When we hear the just law of God, it mixes in with contamination, a brokenness, a desire to want to go our own way and to rule our own lives. And it mixes in there and it comes out contaminated. We can't help it. The law demands justice, it demands repayment, it demands restitution. But you know what? You and I, no matter how much we hear about the wrong things around us and we want things to be made right, the truth is that you and I are on the wrong end of that ourselves. It's not just others that owe repayment and restitution to us or to other people, it's that we owe restitution and repayment to other people ourselves. And, more, and greater than that, you and I owe restitution and repayment to God for breaking his law. And so we long for some, how do we get out of that? How do we get out of that? We're trapped. We long for somebody to come and to fulfill that law for us and to satisfy it for us or we're in trouble. 
But not only do we long for somebody to come and to fulfill the law, we long for somebody to come and to heal society. We look around the world and we see so much wrong that has been done. And it seems like so much oppression, so many crimes, there's so much systematic or systemic injustice that's built in to our society where people just can't seem to to get over the top, can't seem to have opportunity because systemically it keeps them down. We see all the wrong around us. We see all of it around us. But yet, how do we get out of it? We're trapped in it. We long for somebody to come and to fix it, to make it right. But sometimes it seems like a knot that we just can't seem to get undone, right? Like every leader that you and I like see roll across uh, CNN or Fox News, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, or MSNBC, every leader we see roll across that you and I are like, man, yeah, this is the dude or this is the lady or this is the person, this is the hope, they always let us down. Every single political system, every single economic system that humans have, have thought up has seemed to be the hope it is broken. It's a knot that we can't seem to undo. There's so many wrongs that have been done that don't seem to go answered. We long for somebody to come, to be powerful enough to, to undo it, but yet every time we see somebody who gets powerful enough to seem like they can, they can fix things, like they've been polluted by the system themselves, right? We need somebody who is powerful but unpolluted to come and unravel the knot and to make the wrong right and to take those who have been pushed down and to bring them up and to take those who are at the top and seemingly have no one telling them to have to answer for the wrong things they've done and cause them to be accountable for the things they've done. And only Jesus answers that. Only Jesus is strong enough to make a difference, but weak enough to sympathize with those who have been wronged and broken. That's because only Jesus was God, all-powerful, who came in the form of a lowly man, a peasant, a poor man. And not only is a poor man, but was betrayed and suffered and has experienced pain and suffering and betrayal just like you and I have. So he understands and sympathizes, yet he is powerful enough to make a difference, to make things right. Only Jesus offers a path for the strong to find humility and the lowly to find strength and value. That's the message of Jesus. To those who are strong and powerful, he comes and says, I am the only way that you have a path to humility and peace. And to those who are lowly to say, only I will bring you up and give you strength and value. And that's because only he can change a heart. The pride that rules our hearts, the hearts of the powerful and those who are weak and trampled underneath and can't seem to get a leg up, he comes and he's able to change our heart. Lastly, we long for someone to rule our hearts justly. We don't like to be told what to do. But 
How can we change that? It's at the very heart of who we are. It's at the very heart of who you are and who I am. We need someone to come and save us from ourselves. And that's only when we see Jesus. Because it's only in Jesus that we see the wrath and the justice of God. Payment for the wrongs that you and I have done. Married with the love and mercy of God. And that he says, I will come and take the payment that you could not pay. The restitution that you could not repay. We see justice and mercy. We see wrath and love meet in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's only there that you and I can find the heart change, the motivation, the power to bow our hearts to his rule. Because that's really what's at stake here. So my question for you this morning is, what rule are you living under today? This morning, if you're not a believer in Christ, you've never placed your faith and trust in him, you've never bowed your heart to him as your Lord and Savior, you've never said that, yes, you, you are right and just and your laws are right and just and I have totally gone my own way, but I see that you bore the penalty on my behalf and I bow my knee to you, I confess my sin to you and, and confess you as my Lord and Savior, would this morning be the morning? And then if you have done that, if you are a believer, my question for you this morning is, what rule are you living under today as a believer? Are you living today under the, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in your heart? Or are you saying, hey, I know you're the king, but I want to call my own shots and do my own thing. And if you do, you will suffer endless disappointment, endless frustration, because it's only in the rule and reign of Jesus Christ that we find peace. That's because a just society is only found under the rule of God. A just society is only found under the rule of God. I'm gonna pray and the band's gonna come up and they're gonna play for about a minute, a minute and a half or so. I wonder if you'd take a moment just to ask the question to, your, to yourself, whose rule am I living under today? Whose rule is reigning in my heart, in my life today? And then uh, Justin's gonna come, I'm gonna lead us in communion. That's the time for us to, between now and then, to let God deal with our hearts and then let us come forward as a people and celebrate the fact that he came and made restitution for us through his broken body and his shed blood that you and I could not have done on our own. And let's celebrate that today. And let's enjoy being ruled and reigned by Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the fact that even though that we are obstinate and sinful, we just want to go our own way. We don't wanna have anybody tell us what to do, much less the God of heaven and earth. God, even though that we had repayment and that was required of us and we, that we could not have paid, that you came in the form of Jesus, love and wrath, justice and mercy met in him and you loved us as you poured your wrath out upon your son instead of us so that we might be your children. 
Father, I pray that if there's any person here that's not experienced that, that they would this morning, and that for all of us, that you would speak to us and lead us to a life that's growing more and more in the rule and reign of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.